Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome to the latest episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowder, as always. And today, I think that you're probably lucky to be here. You are very lucky to be here to listen to Rebecca Koffler. Now, if you don't know her, and there might be a person or two out there in this country somewhere who, you know, maybe they work they work uh, nights and they sleep during the day. And if you don't have cable, maybe you don't know her. But Rebecca is the author of Putin's Playbook. Now, it's a book I read, and I realized just how smart Rebecca is when I read her book because she was saying exactly what I was thinking. So if she believes what I believe, she must be right. Now, Rebecca is or was the leading Russia analyst at the Defense Intelligence Agency, where she spent uh, more than a decade. And then she left the agency a, a few years back and is now writing books, appearing on television, and doing lots of other things. And, of course, Rebecca is an immigrant from the former Soviet Union which gives her intimate understanding of Putin's mind and of the culture and of the language, which is often deficient. And so with that very long introduction, I want to welcome Rebecca Koffler into NucleCast. Thank you so much, uh, Adam. It's such a pleasure to be here with you and your audience. Uh, but I had no idea that you're also a part-time uh, stand-up uh, comedian. You know, you're just making me laugh. <laughs> well, well, you know, I do. Whenever there's open mic night, you will find me there from time to time. So I do. It's funny. I do like to make people laugh. That's you know what I I wanted to be a a comedian as a career. But I got married young, uh -huh. and so wives tend not to tell husbands go be a comedian. They say get a real job. Oh, I know. Which is which is what happened to me. So here I am. <laughs> you decided I, to go into nukes, right? To get exactly most exciting career. You know the nuclear weapons, the uh, yeah. the fat man and the little boy, right? <laughs> exactly. Stable work. I'm not. You know. The, fortunately. The subject of your book has, you know, he's kept the nuclear community in business because of his actions, which is sort of what we'll talk about today. So, you know, before we, you know, I just, you know, I, I'm curious. I, I, before we get into the, the sort of the deep discussion, let me ask you, what has been the most interesting, because you've had a really interesting life and career. What has mm -hmm. been the most interesting thing you've ever done? Oh, wow. Um, 
I was, well, the most interesting thing, Adam, was the thing that I can't talk about. Uh. <laughs> right, right. But I'll talk, I'll talk around it uh, sure. a little bit. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm a former DIA intelligence officer. DIA is a uh, military counterpart to the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. We actually do the real work. <laughs> we support, <laughs> right. Uh, we support the warfighter. Um, but uh, given, as you mentioned, that I was born and raised in the former Soviet Union, um, yeah, I'm a native Russian speaker. English is my second language that I learned beginning in uh, third grade, I believe. Um and so, believe it or not, in the intelligence community, there's a tremendous shortage of uh, people who don't just speak foreign languages, but understand how our adversaries uh, think. And believe it or not, um, they don't think like Americans, you know. Wow. <laughs> Imagine that, right? <laughs> the Russians don't, the Chinese don't, the Iranians. And so because of my ability to um, to speak, but also to think as a Russian, I was able to do uh, some pretty, uh, pretty cool things in the intelligence community. I was uh, working with the National Clandestine Service, which is uh, part of the CIA. CIA is the one that is in charge of our human operations, meaning uh, human intelligence. These are, uh, they recruit human you know, spies, right? They're, sure. they're Russians who are, you know, let's say they're nuclear scientists working um, in within the uh, Journal Staff Academy, right? Or, you know, another type of like a cyber person and they are able to help us out uh, for one reason or another. They're willing to... You know, betray the motherland, right? And, and give us their secrets. And so I was in, it takes a lot, like to mount an operation, you know, like that and to extract the right secrets. And I'm honored, uh, to have been able to, uh, to participate in those kinds of things to help my adopted homeland, uh, the United States of America, which is uh, the best country in the world, by the way, despite of what the uh, the young people, the woke, you know, type think, it's still the best country. So I'm proud um, to report um, that I've been part of those things, although, and, and they are even more fun and more crazy than some of the movies, um, unfortunately. <laughs> talk about that but maybe in 50 years we'll be able to we're going to have another nuclear cast uh, podcast where you can ask me all those kinds of questions uh when it's declassified well that sounds that sounds like a future uh a future day we'll write that down hopefully you and i'll still be around uh but so let, let's you know let's turn to the book and yep. let's turn to your view of putin so we're in the middle of a conflict in ukraine We've got, you know, it's gone badly for the Russians. Nobody saw it turning out this badly. I, th I think even, you know, I I'll be honest, I was surprised it turned out this badly. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't think the Ukrainians would perform as, I, I, and I know we've been working with them since, you know, the Crimea. We've, we've, there's a lot we've done with them, but 
I didn't expect it to be this good. And I didn't expect the Russian kit to be this bad. And I didn't expect the Ukrainians to adapt as well as they have, and the Russians to fail to adapt. And then Vladimir Putin's repeated nuclear threats against NATO. How? So as we put all this in context, and this is probably one of the big questions that people are burning to know. How should we put his nuclear threats in context? And what should we make of them? Okay, so if you don't mind, let's unpack the first part of your kind of question and statement that uh, the Russians are doing so badly and um, the surprise that um, we all have had, including me. I'm I'm no different than you. You said you were surprised. I I, I think the entire U.S. intelligence community uh, was surprised at the tactical incompetence exhibited by uh, the Russian military, uh, despite the fact that uh, Putin has been preparing for this for the past 20 years. Believe it or not, he has developed, you know, the entire doctrine, you know, that I described in my book at the unclassified level. So uh, everything that they were getting ready for, and and yet there's this major uh, flop tactically, tactically being the uh, the key word here. So if you look at it from uh, the Russian standpoint, and sometimes we all laugh when, uh, you know, Putin's propagandist, uh, Dmitry Piskov, you know, comes out and says, oh, the Russian special operation is going according to plan, according to plan. <laughs> um, so... Um, but actually, uh, believe it or not, um, they are going according to plan. Because if you look at it from the historical standpoint, uh, the Russians have never been tactically brilliant, right? They're not like us. They're not able to put iron on target with the precision of a brain surgeon, right? Uh, minimizing civilian casualties and uh, worrying about striking, you know, maternity hospital or kindergarten. If if anything, they, you know, they're quite happy to do just that. But some of that is really um, not as much as uh, incompetence or intentions, but it's just the type of, it's the culture reflected in their weapon systems. And the culture is really not prioritizing precision necessarily. So they just, you know, uh, drop bombs and hoping it'll hit some target. And um, so Putin's objective, ultimately, remember what he drew the red line on in Ukraine. What is his main objective? To prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. And so as long as he keeps this conflict going, no matter how tactically abysmal it is, Ukraine cannot join NATO because one of the requirements is uh, absence of uh, ongoing conflict and territorial integrity. And so this is a long-term protracted uh, war of attrition. And that's how the Russians won all of their wars. It's relentless attrition of manpower. The Russians have lost uh, 100,000 troops 
at this point, probably more because uh, now that the Ukrainians uh, have launched a blistering counteroffensive, uh, Ukrainians lost uh, as as many. So we have quarter of a million of European um, military age child-producing males annihilated right now. And so if you look at it at the strategic level, Putin is quite happy where he sits right now. What's giving him the heartburn is the recent authorization of the Bradley, uh, of the deliveries of the Bradley uh, fighting vehicles and the Patriot missile systems that Ukrainians have come to Oklahoma to train on. And so we are yet to see in 2023 how this goes. And that is the lay of the land and what we see on the battlefield right now, not at the tactical level, uh, but from Putin's standpoint and at the strategic level. Yeah. So what, what then, if, if this is sort of the lay of the land and this, mm-hmm. you know, this seems to make perfect sense, you know, in and I'm sorry, of- I didn't address the nuke part, but I'm sure we can return to it because that that's your breadbasket. That's your, you know, bailiwick. You are the tremendous expert, you know, one of the top experts in the country. And I'm sure we will address that. So, I just so then I'll give that. Yeah. So, and, and for, for the, for those who may not follow sort of Russian history and the, you know, the central European plane and this Russian, you know, and you, you know, this better than I, this Russian sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for that there's always a fear of invasion, particularly from the West, right. you know, Siberia and the East is a very difficult place mm-hmm. to invade from. You know, it hasn't been done in, you know, 500 mm-hmm. years, but the West has been the problem as of late. And what, what's been, what, four or five invasions from Charles of Sweden to the, to the, you know, to Hitler. And so therefore. And now Sweden is joining NATO, right? Imagine why Putin, he's probably sitting there shaking in his boots, right? Um, and that's driving some of that paranoia. But yeah, paranoia. And so, so they, the, you know, the Russian, you know, this norm to want to have, uh, you know, defense in depth, you know, that would reach all the way to Poland so that Russians could fall back as they try to defend and push, you know, mm-hmm. Western invasion, stop it from reaching, you know, Moscow. And so we're now in a position where they have clearly an inferior conventional capability. But what they do have is non-strategic nuclear weapons. Yeah. And now they're threatening them. Putin is threatening to use them. So what do we make of it? Right. So, so yes, the Russians have always known that they're conventionally inferior, as you just stated. And, um, and also the general staff, which is the brain trust of, uh, of the Russian uh, military intelligence forecasting, right? About 10 years ago, even more, the general staff has concluded uh, by conducting those intelligence assessments that a war between the United States and um, and Russia, so the United States and NATO on one side and Russia on the other, was inevitable. Those are the words in the, in the assessment. And why is that? It's because we've been fighting over control, you know, um, of the same territory 
Russia's post-Soviet space that uh, Moscow considers its strategic security perimeter on which Russia has relied for centuries, as you just described, to protect the heartland. In other words, the the uh, the, the the strategy is trading the enemies, uh, trading the territory for enemies' blood, right? That's why they need that that uh, that distance, and so they decided. Okay, the United States is just, you know, uh, the top of the world as far as its military uh, conventional capability. They watched how we do business in Iraq, Afghanistan, Kosovo, and they just marveled at it because on the military level, there's that respect, uh, right? Because um, they they just watch what we do and they just sit back and they drop their jaws and they said these people are incredible the precision that we strike uh, with the lethality the accuracy our intelligence how we can find I mean we found the damn Osama bin Laden right after ten years and uh, and they say there's no way in hell we can compete with those chaps you know. Uh, and we need to level the playing field. And how do you level the playing field? Well, um, some of the things is cyber and warfare, but the more sort of um, uh, fearsome uh, options are the nukes. That's, that's where you come in, Adam, right? And so they developed this uh, doctrine that is called escalate to de-escalate, whereby they envision that if they detonate a low yield under, you know, one kiloton uh, nuclear warhead in the theater, and in this case, it happens to be Ukraine, but they've prepared that doctrine for, you know, to defend their perceived, you know, sphere influence and strategic security perimeter that includes all of the um, former Soviet states minus the Baltics, Latvia, Lithuania, and, um, and Estonia. And so, and the reason for that is to psychologically dislodge the adversary and also those who are supporting uh, them and, and basically just like just shake them up and um, enforce a capitulation. And that's the reason. And this is why President Biden himself, whom uh, I'm certain has received all those, you know, top secret briefings that uh, that you and I have have received when we were in the business and um and um and so this is why he mentioned the nuclear armageddon that's one of the things that the united states and uh and nato we always have to keep in the back of our mind the the sixty four thousand question of course is this yes it is part of the russian doctrine there's no question we have tremendous intelligence on that uh the question is Will that doctrine being implemented? And it's highly dependent on who is in charge of those weapons, because every president is not the same, right? Including the Russian president. There's Putin, and then there's Yeltsin, and then there's Brezhnev. And so the, uh, all of them would react differently. And the current assessment is that Putin has the psychological profile to actually pull the trigger. And that is the concern uh, in various circles within the U.S. and European um, 
security establishment, and that's my personal concern being right now the national security uh, consultant. So we've got to take a quick break, and when we get back, I want to – I want you to explain, so within the nuclear disarmament community, there are a majority, I would submit, that believe that escalate to de-escalate is a misreading of Russian doctrine. And they say, yes, that is a, that's a majority position that they would say. So when we get back, I want you to explain why you say that is not true. So you're listening okay. to Nuclecast. And we are with Rebecca Koffler. We're talking about Russia and Russian views on nuclear weapons use. And we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we are back. You're listening to Nuclecast. Of course, I'm Adam Lowther, and we have Rebecca Koffler. And Rebecca, Putin's playbook, you mentioned this. You just said it a a couple minutes ago before we went to break. Escalate to de-escalate. Why are you certain that this is actually part of Russian doctrine? Why am I certain, uh, Adam? Uh, well, the answer is very simple because I was one of the top uh, three folks in the entire U.S. intelligence community on Russian doctrine and strategy. And we had uh, exquisite intelligence on Russia. And I will repeat, exquisite. The ability to interpret that intelligence uh, varied by uh, the agency. But this is why um, a few years ago, we stood up an interagency group after we realized, you know, after Putin, I think it took a while for the intelligence community to wake up right to the Russian threat. So Obama was into the reset and all that, those things. But then after Putin invaded uh, Crimea and chopped it off of, of uh, Ukraine, we're like, okay, this guy is real. And so we stood up this, uh, and uh, it is indeed part of the Russian doctrine. There's actually no debate within the uh, security community, like anyone who understands Russia, there's no debate. There's no disagreement. Yes, the peaceniks, you know, Maybe, but that that was actually, <laughs> maybe you can educate me on something. I had no idea that those people thought that it's a misinterpretation. I think they are basically victims of Russian propaganda because the Russians came out and they've said several times, 
oh, you're misinterpreting our doctrine. And Piskov, the Putin's propagandists, will come out and say, oh, there are all these stipulations uh, within the Russian doctrine, and we can only use the nukes to defend the Russian homeland if the viability of the Russian stake is at stake. But there's no one Russian doctrine, right? There's a declared doctrine, unclassified doctrine. And there's another doctrine that, uh, you know, Putin would not talk about. Just, just like we have stuff that we put out, you know, out in the open. You can go on the White House website, whitehouse.gov, and read all Biden's statements. But at the same time, we have the, you know, NSDD, you know, 75 or whatever, sure. where we really, where we really spell out our stuff. And, and yes, it is part of the Russian doctrine. And I am 110% confident. And if you don't believe me, you know, you can uh, look up President Trump's national security strategy where he talks about you know, escalate to de-escalate. And uh, of all people, Trump actually, despite the bad rap that he uh, that he got from the media, he pursued the most robust uh, Russia policy since Ronald Reagan because he understood the um, the former the former KGB operative uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, so you'd, yeah. you'd be amazed at how many you know I write I write about Russian strategy and doctrine. And I often, whenever I say escalate to de-escalate, I often get pushback from those, you know, in the uh -huh. disarmament community who would say that's not accurate. That's that's what you know. What is their argumentation exactly like? Why do they say it's not accurate? Because they would say that that's not that they that is that's the most bellicose interpretation of Russian doctrine. That's usually sort of the. The genesis of the argument is you're taking the most extreme view of what the Russians are saying. In reality, that's not really what they mean. You're misinterpreting them. And so, you know, whenever I ask you, I know you thought it was sort of a silly question, but I wanted to clarify for folks that, you know, the people who look at this in and know the language, the customs, the culture and our yeah. strategy intel officers that's what they think too so it, it's not sort of this outlier of a view it's a mainline view oh yes it absolutely is and if you look at it also from our combatant commander standpoint right you know and i've briefed uh several uh stratcom commander with stratcom being the uh strategic uh, combatant command that's in charge of our nuclear forces and weapons that is charged with protecting our country from the nuclear threat. And like, they have to prepare for the worst case scenario. They can't just say, oh, Putin probably like, well, he's just not, this is a very extreme, you know, view, right? He's not going to do that. He said that he's going to, he, they've written about it, right? In, in, they codified it in their doctrinal documents, but they're just kidding, right? They, they're just not. You can't, you can't have our, uh, you know, four stars operate on that assumption. It's, it's not only silly, it is also irresponsible. They have the mission to protect the country. And so we have to take Putin at 
his words and he stated multiple times what you know you just have to be able to interpret like what that means for example like today he stated uh here's another one like a classical putin uh, uh deception uh he comes out and he says russia intends to uh halt hostile operations in ukraine uh and everybody's like oh wow the war is uh is ending but then uh the day before he stated well we are gonna mobilize uh between 2023 and 2026 1.5 million uh troops and by the way we are augmenting our conventional nuclear and aerospace capabilities and then he said previously by the way Crimea and Ukraine historically belong to Russia and all of that business. And then in the small print, he said, well, we're willing to negotiate uh, about acceptable solutions. So you can't just look at the headline and say and, and make an assumption that he's willing to sit down and negotiate. You have to, like, look at the fine print. What he's willing to do is uh, negotiate on his terms. He wants uh, Crimea and the four other annexed regions, uh, Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, and Luhansk, to be recognized as Russian. And so, and that's the only reason why he would negotiate. So you can't just fall into his trap. You have to really, really be careful with this guy. He is a uh, an intelligence operative and he acts like one. And look, he's quite skillful at that, right, Adam? I mean, he was able to convince former President George Bush, you know, who looked into his <laughs> eyes and said, oh, right? I mean, the guy is talented. And so, but you have, you have to be very, very careful with him. Now, as we look, you know, the, the, there are reports that Putin is sick and that he may, you know, be on his last leg. Do you see, and that, you know, if Putin were to die, this war would end. And, you know, there are some that would say, ah, the next guy could be even worse, right? Which that's always a good thing to, to keep in mind. The next guy could be worse. But how do you see things playing out in, in the years ahead? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, first, uh, regarding uh, Putin, um, Putin's health, right? So the intelligence assessment is that uh, while Putin may have some underlying illness, He's not about to uh, to kick the bucket using the uh, the technical medical term, right? <laughs> um, so what that means is that um, while he might have cancer, right? Cancer is no longer a disease that kills. It's you can you can live with it. Uh, he has no Parkinson. That I just there are all these various you know uh, conspiracy theories floating around and and that is actually our Western uh, disinformation campaign right because just like the Russians who are trying to put psychological pressure on Ukrainians uh, to capitulate and on us to withdraw support from Ukraine 
we are trying to also um, paralyze Putin psychologically if we can and, and undermine uh, the Russian people's support uh, from him and just kind of like give hope to Ukrainians, keep fighting. This guy's, a, you know, he, he's going to die. And uh, Kirill Budanov, uh, Ukraine's uh, chief intelligence, uh, the chief of uh, defense intelligence, um, just came out and said Putin is going to die, maybe not in 2023. So, so no, Putin is way too healthy. As the CIA director, um, William Burns, uh, stated in July, uh, although I don't always agree with, uh, at this point now that I'm independent, um, <laughs> uh, I don't have to uh, to follow the party line. Uh, I don't always agree with the U.S. intelligence community's assessment on this one. I agree. He has no Parkinson. I just got you know confirmation of that. Um, this being said, it's extremely difficult to evaluate with 100% accuracy Putin's health. Why? Because the guy is extremely secretive. He's paranoid to the point where he has his security detail collect his pee and poop when he travels, right? <laughs> you know, his excrements, they carry a special box uh, where they scoop up that stuff. Imagine that kind of job. Uh, but yeah, our you know, pee and poop can tell a lot about how health. And so, uh, so we don't have access to those things. Uh, no Western doctor evaluated uh, Putin in person. So everything that we do is remote. So CIA has a special center um, that deals with evaluating foreign leaders, both their psychological profile and their health profile. And so bottom line, that is this assessment. While he might have an illness, he's not about to kick the bucket. Uh, so we have to plan on this thing going on for a while. Even if he were to go onto the knife, let's say for surgery or something, um, Patrushev, Nikolai Patrushev, his uh, right hand, um, the uh, head of Russia Security Council would step in temporarily. Those two are like that. They're buddies. They're uh, French. They're not just professional colleagues. They go back uh, uh, to 1975, uh, the, the KGB days, and Patrushev is even more ruthless, if that could even be imagined, uh, than Putin. Um, so, so it, it's very consistent. It's like none, none of it is really a surprise because that's just how Russia operates. It traditionally, uh, selects those types of leaders. They, they don't, you know, they wouldn't elect somebody like Biden or somebody like, you know, like Obama and, uh, even Gorbachev who temporarily was, you know, president, he was hated even by the Russian people, despite the fact that he was revered uh, in the West. So Putin uh, is here to stay at least for the next few years. I'm, I'm certain he will run, you know, in 2024 and possibly be president by uh, through 2036. So we need to work out a policy um, on how to deal with that guy. All right. Well, yeah, that was... Uh... That was interesting. I, I was I was sort of sitting on the fence as to, you know, what what was the truth of all of this? So you've cleared that up yeah. for me. Now we're we're running out of time for the show, but I I wanted to ask you if you could sort of 
summarize for us what we need to know about the way Russia and Vladimir Putin think about nuclear weapons? What what would be the sort of the that takeaway message that you would want everybody who's listening to sort of understand about the Russians? Yeah, so so the uh, the Russians believe that nuclear weapons are usable. They have battlefield utility, and that is a change from the Cold War. Right. Remember, we had the uh, the mutually assured destruction. The Americans at that point uh, believed that, you know, because there's mutually assured destru- uh, destruction, the Russians were not going to use it. But it was only later um, when a bunch of intelligence was declassified, we learned that the Russians were actually prepared to use those. They were preparing to fight and win if it came to a nuclear war. And so today, they believe that because the United States has developed this superior conventional capability, right? The, the, the prompt global strike where we can strike any target, you know, on the planet within about 60 minutes or so, plus minus. And, uh, they are paranoid that we could potentially deploy such capability, conventional capability, right, against uh, Russia. And in fact, it's it's the fear that looms large on Putin's and on the Russians' mind right now. Okay, so they believe they are justified to use tactical nukes. Um, and when it comes to tactical nukes, uh, they have advantage. 10 to 1 ratio advantage, um, we have 200, they have 2,000. And they've also stated that because the United States have used those weapons in Japan for the exact same purpose, to de-escalate, to stop the fighting, to stop the annihilation that would have wiped out uh, Japan off the face of the earth, they have the exact same right to do the same in order to protect the Russian, you know, territory, which they include because Ukraine is part of their strategic security perimeter in their view. So in that type of situation, they feel justified. And that needs to be treated seriously. Not to say that we need to just like, you know, give away the store and and sacrifice Ukraine, but to say that we cannot treat that as bravado, we need to look at it and dissect like, okay, what exactly, you know, where where are we at and how do we maintain that conflict without having it, you know, spin out of control, which the war gaming, right? And I've um, uh, participated in dozens and dozens and led some of the uh, war games uh, playing the red team, leading the red team. So, but the war gaming demonstrated that every single uh, simulation scenario ended up in a tactical uh, nuclear warhead detonated in the theater, and the United States had no response. And I suspect it's because there's such an aversion 
to nuclear weapons, as you just described, these peaceniks, right? They think, oh, that's not. But regardless of whether you think Putin's not serious or not, you still have to pre prepare to respond. You can't, you can't just leave it to chance, right? Because it's deterrence right there. It is only if we have our own capability that Trump's uh, Russia's and are prepared to use it that it signals to Putin that that's a credible deterrent. Until then, it's all, you know, he'll perceive it as all not serious and joking around. So that is Russia's position on nukes. Well, well said. Rebecca Koffler, I want to thank you for joining us on Nuclecast, and I want to thank the, the listeners for joining us. So thanks. We appreciate it. And we will definitely, I, I will say, I'm not sure if we're going to wait until, you know, the 50 years for declassification. We may do it sooner. So if something breaks, we'll, we'll have you back. But thanks for joining us on Nuclecast. It will be awesome. It was uh, uh, a lot of fun, although the topic is quite serious. But uh, as you know, people who deal with nukes, we have to maintain our sanity and therefore uh, our, our sense of humor. Otherwise, <laughs> you can go crazy with all that stuff, right? Thanks, Adam, for having me. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Nuclecast. You got it. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Frumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.